Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey there, and happy spring. Welcome back to the Bustle Huddle. I'm Caitlin Abert, your host and senior features editor here at Bustle. So today is Muslim Women's Day, a day meant to amplify the stories and impact Muslim women have on the world. To celebrate, we're heading to Brooklyn to sit down with Amani, the editor-in-chief of MuslimGirl.com and founder of Muslim Women's Day. We also chat with Blair Amani, activist, executive director of Equality for Her, and now author of the upcoming book, Modern Herstory, which celebrates 70 incredible women and non-binary people who are changing the world right now. Then we've got a special treat. We know you guys love figure skating. So when Adam Rippon came by the Bustle office a few weeks ago, we knew we had to grab him for the huddle. He's also got something to say about representation and how his identity impacted his Olympic dreams. When Amani started Muslim Girl in 2009, she never guessed that it would be the first Muslim-owned business ever on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Only three weeks after Donald Trump announced the travel ban, Amani and her team, along with dozens of media partners, held the first Muslim Women's Day on March 27, 2017. Even with only a short amount of planning, it was a huge success, with the hashtag Muslim Women's Day popping up on every major site and social media platform. We were eager to hear about preparations for this year's Muslim Women's Day and what's going to be different in 2018. So we visited Amani to find out. So Amani, congrats on the second Muslim Women's Day. Thank you. I feel like it's such a tremendous accomplishment for just representational around. I was hoping you could give our listeners some backstory on how it began. It's great that you touched upon it from when it was last year, because it was in the aftermath of the Muslim ban happening, right? It's like this national conversation was taking place around, you know, who Muslims are, whether or not they should be allowed in our country, yet Muslims were so left out of the conversation. And so we wanted to really push back against the hate and the misunderstanding with love. And so Muslim Women's Day last year became our call to action to all of our media partners and all of our allies to really just center Muslim women for the day, empower us by centering our voices and our stories and our own um, authentic narratives. Absolutely. Why is this year different? Well, last year we came up with the idea of Muslim Women's Day literally like three weeks before the end of the month. Yeah. That's amazing. So we, had, we yeah. organized the entire thing and executed it within three weeks. This year, we had a little bit of a, of a running head start. We started organizing in January. So we were able to get a lot more people involved and a lot more media outlets too that you wouldn't necessarily expect. For example, like Hypebeast is involved this year as a partner. They're covering modest fashion streetwear, which is really badass. And I'm super excited about that. We're also working with Reddit to host an AMA. And then also one thing that's really distinct this year is that we attached a theme to it. We decided to create the theme, Muslim women talk back to violence. 
And it's kind of like this universal banner that Muslim women around the world can speak to regardless of their walk of life or the society that they live in, because it's this campaign isn't limited to just the U.S. Um, but at the same time, it's it's a theme that taps into all of the timely topics that are taking place around us right now, like around gun violence, around the Me Too and the Time's Up movements. Um, and it really just makes sure that Muslim women's voices stay relevant in those conversations and that we have a presence in them. Mm-hmm. And what are you asking your partners to do? For sure. I mean, the one thing that we called upon our media partners to do is to focus on creating content that centers Muslim women in their own voices. But it's also giving an opportunity to Muslim women to get bylines and access in media outlets that they otherwise might not have access to. So, for example, we have some partners that are pushing out content on Tuesday that isn't necessarily headlining Muslim women or focused on Muslim women, but, for example, is written by a Muslim woman. A lot of our partners also have regular features that they consistently do on their platforms And we have been suggesting and working with them to basically just make it feature a Muslim woman for that day without having to really say it. One of the easiest ways that people can get involved and support Muslim Women's Day is literally just sharing content, right? You know, that's one of the easiest ways in our social media era to give space to voices that we don't always hear from is by hitting share, by retweeting the content that's coming out of the communities that we want to hear from. Um, And, you know, it might seem inconsequential. There are people that claim armchair activism or whatever, but I don't believe in that. You know, I really think that every little bit counts and really just use the hashtag on that day. You know, like take a selfie with the Muslim woman that you know or shout out the Muslim woman that you follow and things like that. I think it's just it really at the end of the day, it's about making Muslim women feel celebrated, loved, appreciated, supported. Um, and that's exactly how it felt last year. It shows like that there's lots of different narratives around Muslim women, like any group of women. Um, And one thing that I know you talk about a bit is the idea of like the trendy narrative Mm -hmm. around Muslim women. There's definitely a trendy narrative for Muslim women in the media. I think even even now we see that the Muslim women that are getting the most visibility fit within a prototype, right? It's like you have to be on the younger side. You are usually light-skinned, usually conventionally attractive, And usually fashion forward, the media seems to love fashionable Muslim women right now. Um, But I do think that we are part of an evolution because even just over the past two years, since Muslim Girl became a company, I've seen such a transformative change in the way that we talk about Muslim women in the media. You know, like a couple years back, the only headlines that we ever saw when Muslim women started to become represented were all focused on the headscarf, right? All of the narratives were look at what these badass Muslim women are doing, you know, despite their hijab or in spite of it. Or, you know, look at these Muslim women. They can be fashionable and modest, too. And it was as if the media couldn't get past that superficial layer of who we are. And it's really funny, too, because it's about women's empowerment. And yet a lot of times people only focus on our garments. One experience that I had last year for Muslim Women's Day that was one of my favorite memories from it was when we were working with one of our partners, a major glossy women's magazine. They were, um, you know, interacting with us, telling us this is one of the stories that we want to do for Muslim Women's Day. We want to do an article about beauty secrets from Muslim women. And we responded saying, okay, well, how about this? Imagine if you were to publish a story called Beauty Secrets from Christian Women. And they were like, no, like that wouldn't work. Christian women are so diverse. There's so many of them. It's impossible. 
And I said, exactly. You know, that's just as impossible as it is to try to describe Muslim women in the same way. Like beauty secrets from who? Muslim women come from every, literally every walk of life on the planet. Um, and so we were able to work with them directly to shift that story. It became beauty secrets from Muslim women on the banned countries list, which made it much more impactful, much more powerful, and also did change the culture around how we view Muslim women, right? That we can't just, you know, refer to all of them in a headline like they're one, one uh, you know, homogenous entity when there's 1.8 billion Muslims on earth. But how can all of us seek out more representation as far as like multi-generational and multilingual Muslim women? Where's that representation? I think that it's the responsibility of publishers to make sure that diversity doesn't just mean skin color, right? One way that Muslim Girl is trying to push back against that is by partnering with Getty Images. So we launched a stock photo collection with Getty focused on Muslim women, but uh, providing depictions of them that are positive, that are diverse, and are really authentic. So for this collection, all of our photographers are Muslim women. All of our models are Muslim women. The models that you see wearing headscarves wear them in real life. Nobody's playing dress up. Um, the ones who don't, don't. And we don't limit who we include in them. And we just show Muslim women in their element do their, doing their thing. Things that were as simple as having a Muslim woman in a boardroom, for example, like in an office space, having a Muslim woman exercising, you know, in exercise clothes. Those are things that people feel are like so strange or they haven't seen before, but it's literally so normal. And I think that introducing that imagery is like one step forward in normalizing it. So one thing you mentioned is the legacy of feminism in the Muslim community. It's funny because a lot of people do a double take, right? Like Islam, feminism, as if they don't go together. But to me, it's redundant because gender equality is one of the basic tenets of Islam and feminism. Um, unfortunately, our religion gets like a really bad rep in the media. Um, it's, it's really just really misunderstood. And um, the, the very little representation that we do get is so focused on people doing it wrong. Um, and I think that's really unfair because when it comes to the religion itself with Islam, one thing that we don't represent enough, we don't put out there enough, is the fact that our entire history is built upon Muslim women that have been really leading the way theologically in terms of you know, what our spirituality should look like, what Muslim women's place in society is. And there's a long line of Muslim feminist scholars that have really shaped our religion into what we understand it as today, that you know, don't get enough credit and don't get uh, uplifted enough. You know, many Muslims deeply, wholeheartedly believe in the revolutionary gender equality that we believe our prophet endowed upon the people when Islam was first revealed. And for me personally, the progressiveness of the tenets that we follow and always has to be that revolutionary proportion to whatever society that we're, that we're in. Like, I think that it's incumbent upon us as Muslims to be at the forefront of the feminist movement, to be at the forefront of racial equality, of economic equality, of all of these things that, you know, really just are about justice. Yeah, here in your office in Williamsburg, you have a sign that says, support your local girl gang. Hell yeah. Hanging in your office. <laughs> right? Support your local girl, girl gang people. That's really, I think girls are going to be our emancipation. You know, like being our sister's keeper is the only way. I think that this generation might have it a little bit more well off than we did because especially for us millennials, like the ones that had to go through it, we've been building the institutions. We've been pushing back. We grew up to be the ones to talk back to everything that was kind of tying our hands behind our backs. 
That's something that motivates us every single day. You know, that's what we're doing this for, so that our daughters can have it better off than we did. Thank you so much, Imani. This has been a total pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for visiting the office today. As Imani pointed out, the stories we hear about Muslim women are often limited. But activist and author Blair Imani is seeking to change that with her upcoming book, Modern Herstory, which profiles 70 women and non-binary people who are shaping the world around us in 2018. I'm so excited to welcome my friend Blair to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you as well. Of course. So it's been a while. Tell me what you've been up to and introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm a Black, queer, Muslim activist, and I'm an author now. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So you have a book coming out in October called Modern Herstory. I'm so excited for you, and I'm so excited for this book because it does something that I think is so needed right now. Definitely. So the tagline is stories of women and non-binary people rewriting history. And so it profiles uh, 70 women and non-binary people from the 1930s to the present with more of an emphasis on people living in the present. I'm always thinking about how we don't really get to tell our stories and how A lot of times activists are turned into martyrs after they pass away, like we've seen with Martin Luther King, like we've seen with Malcolm X. And so I think it is so important for us to define our own narratives and to tell our own stories that I wanted to reach out to a diverse group of women and gender diverse folks, gender non-binary folks, and really talk about how they became who they are, you know. A lot of the people I remember learning about when I was growing up was like, oh, you know, they were born this amazing, like Angela Davis was born with a full Afro. But I really wanted to take people through folks' childhood and talk about formative experiences and really just make it a relatable story so that young folks and older folks can see, oh, I can be this person as well. Absolutely. There are a lot of really interesting young people profiled in this book, including Amani, who we just spoke with. What was the criteria people had to meet in order to be included? I really just wanted to showcase folks who I found interesting or who I found to have a perspective that was unique. Phyllisa Thompson, for example, who created the hashtag disability too white. She's a disabled black woman who is in South Carolina, I believe. And she never saw women of color on TV who were disabled. And so she wanted to make sure to rectify that. So she launched a campaign in the midst of these discussions about diversity in media and continues to do this work today. And something that was interesting was we asked just um, Monique and I, the illustrator, how do you want to be depicted? We have folks who are profiled as, you know, it's a lot of um, portraits. But with Felissa, because she uses a wheelchair, we wanted to ask how she wanted to be depicted. And when I asked her that, it, she said it was the first time anyone had ever asked her. And so I think that's very important. Like what questions aren't being asked and what do people not even consider? What did you learn while putting this book together? There was so much. I got to speak to so many people who were profiled in the book. Um, and then like the living relatives of people who are profiled in the book. So Lorraine Hansberry's sister, Mamie Hansberry. Lorraine wrote The Crystal Stare, Mm -hmm. um, which was retitled uh, Raisin in the Sun. And it talks about a family who is dealing with racism from their neighbors. And it's, you know, based on a true story of Lorraine's childhood. And so when I was speaking to Mamie, her, you know, her sister, she was telling me about how there was one incident where they were sitting on the couch and somebody hurled a concrete block through the window to intimidate them through this, you know, racist domestic terror. And it almost hit Lorraine. And how her father was so adamant that they were going to stay and they were going to stand their ground and they were not going to be intimidated. That was really powerful. The bits that I couldn't include in the book, like 
how the taxi, the Black-owned cabs, would make their round. So when they would turn around to go back into the city, they would do it right by the Hansberry's home because the police weren't going to protect them. So the community was going to look out for each other. So it's just stories like that where despite dealing with racist violence, the community continues to look out for each other. I think Lorraine Hansberry's story is like such a relevant story right now. I know a lot of people. Is there, there might be a movie being made about her at this yeah, point. Yeah, there's a PBS documentary. Yeah, um, because she was a queer woman as well. And that is, I feel like, not part of the story that you're told when you read A Raisin in the Sun as a kid, right? Yeah, it's really, it's something that I wanted to address in the book because she never came out in her life. There's so much politics around posthumous coming out or posthumous outing. So in the book, I basically acknowledge that while she never came out, She's considered to be a queer, feminist, black playwright. Just to make sure that I'm, you know, honoring the fact that this isn't, we don't know. And I see a lot of, the interesting thing with Lorraine is that there are a lot of scholars who consider her to be a lesbian. Um, and she was married to a man. But nobody ever says she might have been bisexual or just, you know, queer, as you had said. So that's another thing, um, looking at, like, bi erasure in these stories. It's hard to say um, definitively what somebody was when they passed, but it's very important to acknowledge that complexity and that nuance because there are people who aren't out today. That nuance is sometimes what trips people up um, in wanting to get involved in activist spaces or wanting to even do something like tweet for Muslim Women's Day and use the hashtag if they're not Muslim themselves. I was wondering if you could offer some advice for somebody who wants to get involved and show that they support different movements, even if they're not part of that movement. There are a lot of white people in particular who want to make a change and want to make a difference. Um, and so after the election, we saw folks wearing like safety pins in solidarity. It was it, it's you know, it gives a good chuckle now, but it was really exhausting in the moment where I would be on the train and I'd see an older woman with a safety pin, you know, one of the like Prada safety pins or something pointing at her lapel and going, look. But, you know, really obvious nonverbals because I was wearing a hijab and she wanted me to know that I, that she was there for me. But that doesn't really do very much. So I think Muslim Women's Day are great examples of how you can support by amplification. Instead of speaking for Muslim women or saying this is the experience of or some people have suggested wearing a hijab for a day, you don't want to define a person's experience by a piece of fabric. So retweeting, using the hashtag, sharing stories, and just using it as a dedicated time to learn about some of the nuances, again, that you might not consider. The idea, and to break down those biases, if you think to yourself, oh, every Muslim woman in a hijab is oppressed, maybe learn more about Muslim women's autonomy. Just like if you're not white, you can still share, you know, interesting facts during Black History Month. It's a time to come together and celebrate, but you wouldn't, during Black History Month, say, I'm suddenly black now and I'm going to pretend that this is my experience. Obviously, we're friends on Twitter, and I saw that you were tweeting about some of the pushback you've received for the book. I want you to explain a little bit about what happened, because I think it's really important as we talk about intersectionality to understand. Definitely. So, you know, intersectionality, just for folks to know, I think it's always great to uplift uh, Kimberly William Crenshaw's work, and she's also profiled in the book. Um, but it's, you know, your the different identities that you embody, as well as the way those identities have a relationship to systems of oppression and how those systems of oppression can affect you simultaneously. So I'm a black Muslim woman who's bisexual, so I deal with, you know, homophobia, bi-erasure, anti-blackness, sex, all the things. But with the book, on the cover, we have, you know, trans folks, queer folks. I put myself on the cover because it's my book and I had to. Fair. Um, and 
I shared it with one of my friends. Um, well, no longer. They said, I can't share your book. There's too many LGBT in it. And I was like, what? First of all, like, it's it's really annoying. You know, when you come out or when people somehow put aside part of your identity to, like, somehow be okay with you, I'm going to ignore the fact that you're black to be friends with you. I'm going to ignore the fact that you're bisexual to be a friend to you. And then to see somebody take something that is as nuanced and as diverse as modern history and just reduce it to it being too many LGBT people, I was like, ugh. So I cropped out the person's name and handle and picture, and I just posted the message, which is now my banner on Twitter, and people just took off with it. Some people were like, that's exactly why I'm buying the book. One person said that they were going to turn the book into a three-piece suit so that there could be one more LGBT in it. <laughs> and so it's just really amazing to see how the community can come together in such an impactful way when people see that you're being attacked. And I think that's really at the essence of what the organizing landscape is right now. You see Trump coming after Uh, immigrants and coming after Muslims and coming after black people and women and reproductive health. And so you're seeing these folks band together because we realize that we have more power together. And modern history is important because it tells these stories together. It doesn't tell a story absent from the realities that people face. It tells the whole picture. And that's something that we rarely see. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So true. Nobody is just one thing. And I think it's really important to remember that as we tell these stories. You're wonderful. And Tegan and Sarah are also wonderful. I know yes, they, they wrote are. the forward for your book. How did that happen? Woo! Okay. <laughs> um, still fangirl about it, clearly. So I came out on Fox News and Tegan and Sarah, I got a message from them on Twitter and they told me to um, text their manager. And I was like <laughs> trying to calm myself down. I was like, I'm not... I'm not that freaked out, but like, whatever, it's it's fine. But let me make sure I know all the words to all of their songs so I can like celebrate properly. <laughs> and as soon as I played closer, like I was just like in tears because I remember being like in ninth grade, we were all kind of like dancing in like what felt like a mosh pit and closer was playing. And I just remember feeling like, no, it's okay to like girls and boys because I'm bisexual and non-binary folks. So when I met Tegan and Sarah, like, they were just so sweet. And it was funny because I had, like, a list of people I wanted to write the forward. And I was like, okay, at the top of the list is Tegan and Sarah. 
so I sent Tegan a text. I was like at a house party and I just like texted my editor and she's like, yeah, we should start talking about forwards. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Okay, well, before I send this long email, let me just like get, you know, the idea out there, feel the idea. And I was like, would you and Sarah be like interested, like maybe like lots of ellipses, lots of emojis in like writing a forward? And then Tegan was like, absolutely. Yeah. And I was like, what? Yeah. And so that's been the whole experience of the book. Just like asking and like people being so enthusiastic to help and to be supportive. Such a dream situation. And it's really exciting. I'm I'm stoked for your book. It comes out in October. And like we said, people can pre-order it. Where else can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. That's uh, where I spend all of my time. I'm actually on Twitter right now. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, all of my handles across social media are at Blair Imani. If you want to hear more of what I have to say or you want to bring me to like your school or your business, you can find me at BlairImani.com. Thanks so much, Blair. Thank you. Okay, so let's go back in time a little bit. One of the breakout stars of 2018 was definitely Olympic figure skater Adam Rippon. He recently sat down with Bustle editor Clarissa Jen Lim to discuss what it was like to be the first openly gay male figure skater and why he may meet with Mike Pence after all. All right. Um, I would like to start with the Olympics. What was your favorite moment from the Olympics? I think for me, it definitely was when we were first about to go out for the opening ceremonies. Mm-hmm. I think like that was a moment I was so waiting for my entire life when they announce the United States of America skating out to center ice alone. Mm-hmm. And now in that moment, that was me walking out with people who I had just met, making that like Olympic connection with and people who I've known my entire life who've seen me go through ups and downs. And that is probably one of my favorite like Olympic moments. Yeah. So I want to talk about the whole Mike Pence thing. Okay. So (laughs) you turned down an invitation. What do you want to know, sweetheart? You turned down an invitation from him to meet. And you told CNN that you're open to meeting him now. Mm -hmm. If that meeting does happen, what's the first thing that you would say to Mike Pence? So it was actually a phone call that Mm -hmm. I turned down. Okay. And it was two weeks before the games. And usually when I'm getting ready for a competition, I don't go out with friends. I don't go to the movies. Like, I'd stay pretty local just to stay focused. Um, And I kind of felt like taking a phone call from the vice president would be a little bit more distracting if, you know, I don't even want to go to, like, Applebee's. Yeah. So it was more a timing thing than anything else? Yes. And, you know, it's a conversation really not for me. So what would I say? It would hopefully be an opportunity for people whose lives have been affected by legislation that he's pushed. Mm -hmm. It would be a time for them to share their stories with him and why they feel that the legislation that he's pushed is wrong. And I believe that it's wrong. And that's why I spoke up. It's important that um, as an openly gay man and somebody who has openly been very critical and has been quoted as saying that um, gay marriage could be the societal collapse of America. I think it's important that um, I take a stand and say that that's totally outlandish and wrong. That's why I didn't feel that he was the correct choice to lead the delegation, especially we had a few out athletes on the team. We had me, Gus Kenworthy, and Brittany Bowe. Mm -hmm. You know, I I spoke up, but it's a conversation 
that isn't for me. It's for those who really have a story to tell. Because I've been really lucky that anything that Mike Pence has tried to do had no bearing in my life. Can you describe how you came to the realization that you have a responsibility to give a voice to people who have been affected by legislation from this from this administration? One of the best things that ever happened to me was that I didn't make the Olympic team four years ago and that it was like so devastating because it really put everything into perspective for me. You know, a year later after that, really kind of just had a breakout year after wanting to quit. After that, I um, publicly came out and shared my story. And then I was national champion. Mm-hmm. And I just was realizing that when I tried to share my story to kind of help other young kids, I was realizing that I found a lot of power when I felt that my skating was bigger than me, that it was almost a way for me to help other young kids to like be a role model for them. For me personally, I always find it easier to do things for others rather than do things for myself. Mm-hmm. So it almost made it easier and it almost took some pressure off because I was thinking of doing this like for other people, not for myself. Yeah. And so I want to talk about your comments on body image issues. Mm-hmm. You had an interview with the New York Times where you told them that I think in 2016, your daily diet was three slices of bread and coffee. Mm-hmm. You said, and I quote, it makes me dizzy now to think about it. And it was honestly the first time I have ever heard about something like that. It's difficult, I think, for a lot of athletes to do it, let alone male athletes, to talk about this. Um, you know, I think it's difficult for people to talk about because they're embarrassed. Do I feel like I had an eating disorder? I don't. I think I had disordered eating. Being involved in sports, you um, live a life that is filled with, like, inconsistencies. And I found so much strength in almost, you know, finding control over something. I would look at food and um, be like, well, I'm only going to eat this little amount. And I felt like I had control. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, okay, well, I'll go on the ice and I'll be as light as possible. So it was never like a body image thing for me. But like, you know, there was a lot of like binging and purging. So it was like eat a few, three slices of bread for a few days and then you go and you're like, okay, well, I'll have like two boxes of Frosted Flakes with chocolate milk because oh, it's okay. I didn't have anything. Yeah. But, so like you're just not fueling yourself properly. Another thing that was great that happened to me was I broke my foot. And when I broke my foot, I was like, I feel like I wasn't doing everything I could to be the best and healthiest person that I possibly could be. So one of the best things that I did was I went to the Olympic Training Center and um, I started working with a nutritionist. I sat down in her office and said, I know I have a problem. I need to know the facts I need to know what's the best thing for me to do right now um, because I want to be better. And mm-hmm. I think because of that, I was able to like come back from that injury and not only be better, but I was so better prepared 
for the whole like Olympic experience. And in part because you also met with a nutritionist and started working with her. Yeah. And I think even more than that, I learned that it's important to be like really honest because we would work with a nutritionist once a year and we'd talk about problems we'd have or whatever. And, you know, I'd lie. I would just be like, yep, I'm fine. Yeah, I have like, you know, all the meals and tons of protein and blah, Hmm. blah, blah. And then I'd go home and I'd just be like, well, I'm just on this crazy diet that I invented where I just have five Chobani yogurts, Uh, you know. All day. Yeah. Wow. So it was just, you know, I would do crazy things based in no fact and just because I felt like I wanted like control over a situation Mm -hmm. in a life filled with ups and downs. Sometimes, you know, when you felt like you had control over a situation, you just felt like, okay, at least I'm doing something. Yeah. You are the first openly gay U.S. Olympic figure skater. Mm -hmm. How does it feel to carry a responsibility of that distinction? Um, One, I think it's kind of crazy that I'm like the first openly gay um, winter athlete. You know, it was funny at the Olympics was I was there and I saw, you know, a lot of things that were getting picked up by the media. And um, at first they were like gay Olympian. And then a few days later, it was Gay Olympian Adam Rippon. And then before I left, everything I did was Adam Rippon, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that qualifier was gone. Yes. Yeah. Um, my, my job title was gone. <laughs> I thought that was pretty awesome. And, you know, there were a few times when um, I was asked about, like, oh, what is it like being a gay icon? And um, I shut it down and was like, I'm not a gay icon. I'm just an icon. Um, because I think a lot of times a personality like mine or sometimes somebody who is gay kind of gets thrown into that box of, oh, well, you're just like four other gay people. And that's not true. Like I can walk into a room and I can make everybody laugh. I can walk into a room and make friends with everybody. Being gay, I share that story because, you know, my coming out experience was when I really embraced who I was and I got so much confidence from that. And I feel like in a way, everybody goes through a coming out experience. For me, my coming out was sharing my sexuality and owning that part of me. And I think, you know, for somebody else, it might be finding their passion. I think everybody in their life, when they have that breakthrough moment or that moment where they've pushed through and, you know, shared something very personal, it's liberating. And um, that's why I share my coming out story. One last question. Yes. Um, what What is the gayest thing you did this week that would piss off Mike Pence? Mm, I did quite a few gay things. <laughs> um, what would be the gayest? I think... I did a quiz with BuzzFeed where they brought out different, um, you know, foods or pictures or objects and I had to grade them on a scale from one to ten on how gay they were. And that was probably the gayest thing I did. Yeah, I don't think Mike Pence would watch that. No, probably not. (laughs) That's it for our show. Thank you so much to all of our guests for sharing their stories. We're so inspired by all of you. Next week, we're asking a question of the universe. Is Mercury in retrograde a real thing? We talk with science and astrology experts to find out. Everyone uses it as an excuse for why they're like off their game or why bad things are happening to them. And I'm just like, girl, you just got to admit you just like messed up there. 
This show was produced by Julia Shu and Anna Parsons with editorial guidance from Roseanne Salvatore. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear what you love most about the show. You can reach us at huddle at bustle.com. I'm Caitlin Eber, and we'll see you next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.